Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest today is a really interesting guy, J.R. Skoke. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the Made of Mars initiative, uh, some NASA stuff, and the SETI Institute. J.R., how are you doing? I'm doing well today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming. So um, would you let listeners know what you're working on and a little bit about your background? So I'm a planetary geologist. My background for the last um, many years have been understanding the geology of Mars and other planets. So um you know, doing geology of the planets there, as well as kind of mission development to figure out um, how to explore the planet in the future. Um, you know, I've always loved astronomy. I spent my childhood watching the stars and um, just always wanted to, like, know what was beyond. And um, early on in life, I started working at observatories throughout high school, um, started doing actually Mars research during high school, kept that going, understanding how erosion rates work there. Um, in college, I was lucky enough to work on the Mars Exploration Rover. Um, did image processing, kind of color calibration there. Uh, that kind of led to doing graduate work in Mars geology, uh, understanding how volcanoes evolve and have formed early Mars, uh, the discovery of hot springs and kind of their role in possibly hosting and maybe even preserving life uh, on Mars or ancient Mars as like also a target for where we can go and explore. So like that's the kind of work I've been doing uh, to the uh, undergrad at Cornell University and uh, grad school at Brown. Uh, I did a postdoc and now in a, I'm an adjunct professor at um, Louisiana State University and I'm also a research scientist at the SETI Institute. Very interesting. This may be a silly question, but why Mars and not the moon? Is Does the moon have much for us to study and offer or is it boring for some reason compared to Mars? Yeah, Mar uh, the moon is amazing. There's lots of questions still being asked there. It's definitely a thing worth studying. Uh, for me, as a kid interested in astronomy, uh, Mars was the perfect boundary of something that was uh, both far away and exotic, and we never really know what's there, um, as well as close enough that we could dream of going there. Um, when I was a child, you know, people walked on the moon, and it's still a great subject, and we still have so much more to explore. But for me personally, I wanted to take the next step to the next planet out. Um, this may be a silly question again, but how long would it take us with current technology to send people to the moon versus Mars? Uh, so our technology as far as transport is not that much different than the Apollo missions uh, from the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and that took about four days or so to get to the moon. And current rockets to uh, Mars uh, take around seven to nine months, depending on the particular year's orbits. So is it feasible right now that we could send a manned mission to Mars? Or what are the, the showstoppers? in doing that. Right? Yeah, I think um, we can definitely send a mission to Mars, whether or not they would survive there and survive back. Those are the big questions at the moment. Uh, there's so many open questions. Um, I think as far as technology going, like getting a rocket there um, could just about be possible. Uh, the big issue is getting enough mass for life support, all the things that humans need to survive that trip. And there's still a lot of medical questions, radiation exposure, uh, how humans last for that kind of long duration, as well as all the kind of um, fine um, landing issues and other things you'd want to do on the Mars side. So I think like a lot of the big technology 
like problems have been solved. The big things that are currently um, being worked on is how do you make that much more efficient? Uh, and once you like, you know, if you had unlimited money, like back in a Powell, basically the government put unlimited money to get humans to the moon and back and you can accomplish it. Um, nowadays, we don't have unlimited money in the NASA world or any kind of space industry. And so people, um, you know, uh, organizations like NASA as well as SpaceX, they're working on refining the technology and um, making it affordable. So that way, getting all the materials and all the things you need to keep humans alive and well and doing what they need to do becomes affordable and therefore possible. Makes sense. Okay. And then we'll, we'll get into what you've learned from, from studying Mars, but how much of a Earth geologist do you have to be in order for that to translate over to Mars? Is it 99% the same or how different what you're looking at? Uh, it really depends on the nature of the work you do. At one time, it was all Earth geology, and then we got the first couple images of Mars. Uh, recently, we've had an explosion of Mars data that a lot of the scientists spend their entire um, graduate work and all their research career studying almost purely Mars data. Um, there is some value to being completely absorbed into the data sets from there, but we find out that you're always, the more rocks you see, the better geologist you are. So the best um, Mars scientists, Mars geologists, often have been to all over Earth, understanding how the systems work here, and then take those understanding, take those um, uh, the kind of subtleties of the science here and bring them to Mars. One of the big limitations we have on Mars is there's just so little data. Even if all of our missions, all of our instruments there, uh, we only have data from a few places on the ground. And then if we go from orbit, we have very limited um, types of data sets. And so you're always looking at Mars a little blind. Um, you can see some things very well, but you're kind of blind to other uh, compositions, other qualities, things that our current instrument suites can't see. And if you study Earth, you have almost an unlimited amount of uh, different types of data sets, different resolutions. You can get your head right on the rock. And so understanding the kind of mess, the messiness that happens on Earth geology helps you understand the complexity of these systems. And so when you go to Mars and you only see um, a fraction of the complexity because of the instruments you're looking at, you can kind of understand um, how much more complicated it likely is and the kind of answers to what caused that when you see it on Mars. Interesting. Okay. So what what have you gotten from Mars to study? You've gotten images. Um, have you gotten any samples of, you know, Mars so dust? We've never collected samples from Mars. It's really hard to go there. So the next NASA mission is going to spend the next 20 to 30 years, three different missions, about $10 billion of funding for these three missions to bring back 100 grams of sample. Um, so that's very hard to get samples back if you're doing it intelligently. But there's a process that uh, impact craters will hit into Mars and launch rocks into space. And some fraction of those make it to Earth orbit. Some fraction of those um, land and survive their um, collision with Earth. And some fraction of those are actually found by humans. And some fraction of those are actually identified as Mars meteorites. And so we do have a couple of dozen Mars meteorites, Mars rocks. Um, that came from the surface of Mars and the nature processes that brought them here and we identified and uh, these Mars meteorites are one of our richest um, samples of what actually happened on Mars and what made it into what it is today. Yeah, so tell me some of the insights you have that just about no other human has about Mars. <laughs> so um, the biggest thing that I've been studying is kind of the ancient history of Mars. Um, on Earth, Earth is a very active planet. You have plate tectonics, you have volcanoes, you have all these things, erosion. And so most of Earth is very, very young. 
the majority of Earth is the ocean floors, just that's the volume of uh, most of the area of Earth is ocean, and that's only a couple hundred million years old. Whereas the continents are much older, but even there, you only have a couple of rocks from about three billion years, and most of it is in the last few hundred million years on the continents. On Mars, uh, you kind of have this frozen planet from the first half million to uh, or first half billion to a billion years, and so this kind of ancient planetary crust, this kind of ancient time, is preserved there in a way that doesn't really exist on Earth. And so a lot of the work I do is trying to explore. Um, the nature of this first billion years of planetary evolution. Um, and Mars is just like a perfect repository of all this ancient uh, rocks and processes and all these things that would have probably have happened on Earth too, but have been lost. So we saw giant volcanic eruptions. We saw um, lots of alteration, early hot springs, all these things that may have um, you know, been the kind of the, the first alteration, the formation, and the first places where life would have formed on Earth. But we lost that evidence here. Uh, it's still preserved on Mars. So kind of understanding this early, uh, earliest, very active part of solar system history is still recorded on Mars. And that's kind of the work that I most go after and um, discover. So, okay, so that's what you're working on, but what have you discovered? What was ancient Mars like and what, what is ancient? How many years ago? And yeah, so ancient um, yeah, so ancient's about four billion. So like the first billion years would be four and a half to uh, three and a half billion years. Um, and that's kind of the most we can say about the age uh, within that first billion years. It can be a little tricky with um, just so much history. Uh, one of my bigger discoveries was the discovery of ancient volcanic hot springs. These are hot springs that uh, would have formed from like a long-standing volcanic eruption. Uh, they could have been active as long as 100 million years that we think the volcano was active. And hot springs are just like the perfect place for both um, uh, starting life, a place where it has the right kind of energy and nutrients and everything that we think life needs to start, as well as the perfect geology for preserving that. So these are like a giant beacon of minerals that kind of say, like, this is a place where life could have formed. It's a place that could have preserved life. And it's a place that humans should come and search for evidence of life. And it's all from this early, long-term, stable history of Mars, when it would have been wet, it would have been much warmer, and all the things we think life is. And so this kind of discovery of these um, places to pinpoint the search for habitability pinpoint the search for evidence of life um, is kind of like the biggest discovery. And my current work with NASA now is trying to pick out exactly how to design a, a rover, a mission, some sort of robot to go into these hot springs and determine if life ever exists there. So my main job now is to travel to all the hot spring spots on Earth, understand how these systems work, understand how we can explore them, and then put that kind of information into a robot that we can send to Mars and determine if these springs ever actually had life. What elements do you think were there in early Mars? Do you think, you know, oxygen, uh, carbon? What What do you think was there, possibly? Yeah, all the main, um, you know, most planets are formed from generally the same kind of um, elements. Uh, the surface of Mars would be slightly more iron-rich um, than uh, Earth. But, like, other than that, um, the same kind of carbon, silicon, oxygen, uh, you know, more or less, you know, ratios that we're used to. Uh, but they would all be active there. So like, there's no real um, elemental limitations, uh, especially in the early Mars compared to what we have now. So what, what happened, do you think? Why did Mars become a, a dead planet? Yeah, the main uh, theory for that is that it's just a much smaller planet. So a lot of the geologic processes that are still being played out on Earth happen much faster. Uh, the main thing that kind of keeps us different than Mars is the fact that we have a um, magnetosphere. It's because our planet's bigger, uh, cooling more slowly, 
we still have a very molten iron core on Earth. This generates a magnetosphere, which protects our surface from all the kind of very harsh um, solar rays. And so on Mars, it, since it's smaller, it would have cooled faster. Uh, you would have gotten rid of this protective magnetosphere in the first billion years. And without that, the solar rays and particles would basically blast away uh, the lightest um, atmospheric gases. And over a few billion years, you really lose most of your kind of insulating atmosphere and become a much more dry desert kind of what we think of Mars is today. Huh. Interesting. Um, so what have you learned so far? I, mean, I know that you really have only images to go on, but um, you know, what have you learned from working on the rover projects? What do you know about Mars that, uh, that other people don't know? You said there's evidence possible, these, these springs from a long time ago. Yeah, I think the, the big thing is that uh, we have, um, well, you know, on top of our images, we have hyperspectral images. So we have a lot of compositional data. So we know actually the minerals, the materials of Mars. And in the materials, these minerals are kind of tracers of what the environmental conditions were. We see phyllosilicates, which is um, the, the technical term for like clay minerals. And clays are formed on Earth where we have very warm, neutral, lots of water flowing. And so um, rocks like basalt, things like that flow out of Hawaii would alter to these clays. And so this is a, and half of the planet, if not more, of Mars, we found these kind of minerals. So that means early Mars, when you go back four billion years, there was water everywhere. It was very altered, very kind of um, nice, warm, especially when you get just below the surface. You know, you have a lot of just planetary heat that was kind of altering these rocks. And so Mars, like right now, if you like look at it, you think of like something close to Antarctica where it's cold, dead, dry. But Mars early on was much wetter, much more lively. Um, kind of the working analog that a lot of us use is like think of Iceland. Iceland, you know, it does get cold, lots of glaciers, but you have volcanoes, hot springs, all this kind of uh, beautiful um, temperate things that, again, can be kind of harsh at times, but very, you know, good for life to live. And so we want to think about early Mars. We often kind of use Iceland today as a model for the kind of geologic um, landscape that would have been there. And based on what science has learned about Mars, has that enabled us to create any new technologies on Earth or alter any technologies? I think that... Um, so far, there hasn't been, to my knowledge, a lot of um, like commercialization of the kind of techniques. Uh, one of the big things is that by um, developing technologies to go to Mars, uh, you do you know, enhance your um, instrument um, development. A lot of these instruments um, you know, we've been building on Earth for scientific discoveries here, uh, they have to become more robust, they have to become smaller uh, to send to Mars. And that kind of feedback has kind of um, improved what we have here to work with. We've learned a lot about, um, you know, trying to do planetary protection, trying to make uh, these instruments, these landers, everything sterile enough that if there is life on Mars, we don't contaminate it. Um, that taught us a lot about how kind of um, to sterilize uh, various spacecrafts. And I think there's some feedback into kind of technology for keeping clean for clean room kind of development, as well as the kind of engineering of um, just general aerospace development. Um, you know, a lot of students. Um, kind of go through NASA internships, kind of get their, uh, cut their engineering teeth working on some of these missions, and then spend their careers in industry and uh, the rest of the kind of um, businesses and jobs that those kind of aerospace engineers have. So it's a good like, kind of training ground for a lot of our um, industrial workers and scientists and engineers today. Okay. And what, uh, you know, besides your love of the place, and what benefits have you gotten from studying Mars? 
I think for me, it really changes my um, context and how I look at the world. Um, you know, oftentimes as humans, we kind of get lost in the moment. Like, like, you know, we're so focused on dealing with today and tomorrow. And sometimes like thinking uh, big, thinking long term can be very hard. And for me, like all the rocks I work with are four billion years old. Um, so I have to think on many billions of year timescales. And it kind of changes how I kind of sometimes go about day to day. You know, like if the thing I'm working on, if this is not going to have an impact in five years, you know, I, I kind of think of, you know, long term um, successes, long term steps for the things I do, as well as the kind of the multi-planetary um, viewpoint. You know, we often get also like um, not only in the moment, but we get very focused on our day and the people we interact and kind of forget about um, the perspective of humans are, you know, we're just a tiny little temporary inhabitants of a little speck of dust in space. And there's something magical about kind of looking back and seeing how fragile we are, how precious we are. And I think Mars is a great way to see that history, uh, what that planet has gone through um, in order to like show us how fragile what we have is and how valuable it is and how important it is to kind of make sure we are stewards of what we have here and kind of can look long-term, think long-term and really um, see how precious what we have is. And what, what is um, studying Mars taught you about the possibility of life on other planets? I mean, it looks like they're very, they're, there may have been life on Mars a long time ago. You know, obviously, there's life on our planet, but how is your perspective different now? Yeah, I think um, the biggest thing we learned on Mars, like for most of human history, it was just a little red dot in the sky. Um, and over the last few centuries, it's become an entire world. Uh, so now with our images there, we can see uh, lakes, we can see rivers, we can see volcanoes and canyons and um, hot spring deposits. All these things that we are so used to seeing on Earth, we know existed on Mars. And, you know, these are not the only two planets that would have had this kind of history. Um, now, Kepler is a spacecraft we've been staring out at a few stars and discovered thousands of planets, including dozens and dozens of ones about Earth size. So these kind of basic geology uh, processes, these things that kind of make it friendly for life as we know it, these planets are common. Um, they're very hard to find, and we're already finding them. And so as we like, that means there's many, many out there. And um, lots of places for, again, life as we know it. You know, there's a lot of questions about life as we don't know it. Things like gas giants floating around Jupiter or things floating around in the bottom of uh, the oceans on Europa. And those, you know, are definitely possibilities for different types of life to live. But even life as we know it, things that like, you know, geologically similar to Earth bodies, um, there are so many planets that have these properties all throughout our galaxy and probably many other galaxies. So there's Showing that these features exist both on Earth and its neighbor Mars really increases the chance that these are um, very common, uh, kind of realistic, very familiar worlds all throughout space. Interesting. I have a question that's kind of, you know, possibly a good or bad one to ask, but how have your spiritual or religious views changed by studying Mars and having this um, long, long-term outlook of billions of years and, and seeing that yeah, I there, think, um, there could be life on other planets? I was raised in the Roman Catholic world, and a lot of the major religions that have evolved on Earth kind of stick Earth in the very center of things. And I think that it's very hard to kind of see a true, any kind of truth to a, a Earth-centric view of spirituality when you kind of know Earth's true place. Uh, it's just one of a many you know specks of dust floating around one particular star in a very unspectacular part of our galaxy. 
And as we discover so many other worlds just like Earth, um, you realize, you know, how kind of randomly placed in our galaxy we are, how kind of fragile we are, how short-lived humans are. You know, for the long history of life on Earth, humans are just a fraction of a bit of that. And um, to think that, you know, humans are particularly special in any kind of meaningful way is just really hard to um, accept. But at the same time, because it's so fragile, because it's so tiny, because um, we're so short-lived, to me, that makes our experience, our existence, all that much more precious. Um, even if it wasn't planned, it's not the reason for everything. The fact that in all the chaotic things that could have led to other types of life or even to our extinction before, um, the fact that we are here is such a precious thing. Um, so I think it's both kind of um, kind of making you much more humble about your place in the universe and feel much more um, precious about the fact that we are here. Okay, very good. Right. What are the Made in Mars efforts? We'll delve into that for a few minutes. Yeah. So, um, you know, my background is doing Mars exploration from the science side and um, kind of working with the government. Uh, government's a fairly conservative thing and they kind of go like step by step to do science research. Um, but kind of I want to think about long term how we can drive the future of Mars, as well as kind of connect with people. And so kind of um, trying to find a different model to do what I care about and trying to um, connect what I do with a larger public, I've created the company called Made of Mars. And the main goal here is to kind of enable uh, long-term human space um, settlement and uh, exploration. Um, and for humans to ever kind of leave Earth and to kind of live you know, on Mars and beyond, we're going to have to be able to make everything we need from local materials. Um, you know, it's so hard to ship things from Earth, um, especially, you know, it takes you know, seven, eight months to launch it from Earth to Mars, and it's crazy expensive to launch it. So anything that we can make on Mars to help us live there uh, just makes the whole process much easier. So uh, my expertise, as I mentioned before, is the materials of Mars. I spent my career understanding what Mars is made of. I know uh, what minerals, what materials, I know where on Mars they are. And I also spent a lot of time understanding the materials of Earth which places have volcanoes just like we have on Mars, which minerals, which clays, which um, gypsum deposits are just like we have on Mars. And so I'm working on the technology to kind of transform these materials that exist on Mars that we also know on Earth into all of the kind of things that humans need to live, all the things we want, all the things we need, all the things that will allow a future civilization to survive and thrive. And so Made of Mars wants to turn, um, you know, right now our first step is to transform these analog materials, these materials on Earth that look just like we know we have on Mars, into dry, uh, durable goods, all the things that people want to have now to kind of help um, develop the technology and also connect people. Um, now, I think that going to Mars and going to space is just a requirement for human survival. We are either going to go into space or we're going to go extinct here on Earth. And given that this is a, a need... I really want to connect people. A lot of people are interested in the space, want to be part of the journey to Mars, but don't really know how. And so Made of Mars wants to develop that technology to produce things from the materials of Mars and then allow um, these products to be kind of uh, a way for everyone on Earth to invest in this journey, to feel like they're part of it. By purchasing a Made of Mars project, uh, product, they can own a piece of the future materials of Mars, help invest in the development of technology that will enable our children, our grandchildren to live on Mars and beyond and have a bit of these um, uh, materials, these products of Mars to be in their life. 
And so that's kind of what made it Mars is, is to both develop the technology that will enable us to live on Mars and beyond and connect everyone on Earth to this journey to make it real, something that they can um, bring to their lives and help make happen. What do you think might be the first product from the company or product of the company? Yeah, so um, we're looking at many different sides of it. There's a couple of, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a scientist and I'm quickly learning how to produce products. So we're um, kind of starting small. It turns out that there's already fabrics um, that are made from volcanic rocks, the same kind of basaltic lavas that erupt on most of Mars. They're the same type of volcanoes that make up Hawaii and Iceland. And we can actually churn these rocks into fabrics. Uh, we can melt down and pull into threads and then weave together. And so I'm making um, one of my first product lines is going to be a bit of um, kind of like a basaltic lava fabric um, line of things. So um, as I'm trying to understand the technology to work with these materials better, trying to turn them into very high quality products, um, I, one of the first things I want to do is a laptop case, something kind of incorporates this material into something you can use every day. That way the journey to Mars can be in your hands, um, literally, as you you know, can show off to your friends and your neighbors and whoever you meet that you want to be part of this journey, that you're investing in it. Um, I'm looking to expand into all sorts of kind of fabric um, um, kind of goods that people can incorporate this into their lives, uh, show off that they want to be part of this journey and that they're investing for the future of humanity. Um, we're also looking at a ceramic line, turning the clays of Mars, the same kind of clays that make bowls and ceramics on Earth. We also know those are on Mars. So we're also looking at like um, cups and bowls, things that can incorporate these materials that we have on Mars into things that people can incorporate into their lives today. You know, it'd be interesting. You talked about fabrics. I think a great idea would be to make a dress that um, a star could wear, for instance, at the, uh, <laughs> the Emmy Awards made of, uh, you know, volcanic rock. And I think That's that would bring a lot our, of attention to your project. Yeah. Uh, it turns out, though, it's very... Um, uh, challenging to design a good dress. And as a geologist, my personal training has not um, been in that world. So finding the right, right kind of designer who wants to work with these materials is definitely on our um, to-do list. Yeah. I just think that'd be a cool idea. I agree. Um, any beneficial material properties of making fabric from you know these rocks? Any beneficial properties from making ceramics? Will they have... Better durability, strength, sheen. I mean, yeah. So, so they yeah, they're be... definitely beautiful. Um, the the materials we already have, the the basaltic fabrics, they're a bright, attention grabbing kind of almost golden luster kind of thing. So it's definitely a beautiful sheen. Um, they're also like mechanically very strong. Um, uh, thermal properties, like they're made out of volcanic rocks. So unless you throw them in a volcano um, to those kind of temperatures, <laughs> they're very hard to melt. Um, they you know they don't burn. So they're often already used in kind of industrial purposes. But I'm looking for ways to incorporate these materials of Mars into your life today. Um, the big advantage, the long-term advantage, is that when you're on Mars, there are already materials there. You know, on Mars, mm. we won't have sheep to make wool. We won't have lots of extra uh, soil and farmland to kind of produce cotton. All those things will be incredibly expensive um, imports to Mars. So the big advantage is once we get off Earth, these are the materials we'll have on hand as to um, use and make everything out of. So that's uh, the long term. And so I think today, you know, this connects you to the future. This is a material that when your grandchild's living on Mars, this is what he'll have. And you can be connected to him and kind of invest in his future by helping us, like, make this uh, fabric better, more usable, uh, have improve its kind of natural properties. So that way, when your grandchildren are using it on Mars, 
they'll be thanking you for thinking ahead and helping create what they need. Very interesting. So last question, how can um, people participate in the Made made, in, made on Mars, or sorry, Made from Mars project? How can they get more information about it and you know, participate so we have in a, it? Yeah, we have a website, uh, madeofmars.com. We are still very early in the process trying to get our first products that we then can kind of incorporate into people's lives and kind of get out our message. Uh, already, we um kind of talking about the materials we have and trying to promote kind of the story. Um, again, our, our main purpose is to turn uh, this kind of point of light, this distant idea that is Mars, into something that's real. I want people to think of it, like understand the images from it, kind of embrace this as a place that we're going to go as soon as we decide to go and make it someplace that people feel is real. So kind of going to our madeofmars.com, there's also links to my uh, Facebook page and Instagram where I'm kind of posting images of Mars, kind of also trying to bring a bit of this uh, geology, this kind of landscape of Mars into the life. So kind of going to there as well as, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I think the Facebook page is probably the best place if people have questions about Mars and want to talk to me about it. Um, there's uh, going to be a listserv sign up on the website as well if people want to get some more information. Um, so that's the best way right now. And then as products uh, come online, they'll be available through the website and the different kind of social media aspects that we're developing through uh, madeofmars.com. Okay. Well, very good. You know, it took me until just about now to understand why you'd want to be involved in Mars and think about it and the Made of Mars company, but I really appreciate your thinking. It makes a lot of sense, and I think it's going to bring a lot of good to the world, even if we never went to Mars, which I hope we do. So I appreciate well, you coming a, on the podcast. Thank you. It's a powerful thing, right? Just thinking about Mars makes you think of how precious and how delicate our life here is. And if a little bit of that message reaches a few more people, I think we're doing a good thing. Definitely. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.